All right, if you got a bulletin on the way in, there is a sermon outline in there. Grab that. And um, if you got a Bible, we're going to be again in Luke chapter 18. This afternoon, right after church, Shell and I are going to bolt out of here because we're uh, heading to Indiana um, to attend tomorrow the court hearing for our grandson's adoption. It's a big day for our family, uh, welcoming officially Mateo into the clan. And it also gives a little opportunity to spend some time with uh, the other grandkids and our kids and enjoy that. As I, we hang around with grandkids, it has struck me recently that many of the kids' songs you know, that uh, we sang, that I sang even growing up, and that we sang with our kids are still the exact same kids' songs that get used uh, with uh, toddlers and whatnot today. And so I want to start this morning with a little quiz. I have the opening line up here. No, we need audience participation for this to work. The opening line up here, and let's see uh, if you can finish the line. I have no doubt that you can. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. Pat a cake, pat a cake. See, it's a very easy test here. The itsy bitsy spider went up. The water spout. Yeah, down came the rain and washed the spider out. Twinkle, twinkle. How I wonder what you are. Father Abraham had many sons. many sons. Now, we won't sing that one, you know, with all the motions and whatnot, but it is a good aerobic workout if you uh, head down to Awana Sunday nights. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And here's the one that leads into what we're going to talk about today. Zacchaeus was a... A wee little man. We don't say that. It's worth singing that kid's song just to be able to say that. It was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You guys did really good. Really good with that. You have, uh, you have remembered your kid's songs. Uh, the last three on the list there are Bible-based songs. And that is a good way for children to learn Bible content. Music makes things stick, doesn't it? And it's kind of interesting how all these years later, for some of us, you know, uh, 50 years since you maybe you sang that the first time, or a few of you maybe longer than that, but for me, 50-ish, 55-ish years, um, that those words still stick. Uh, music accomplishes that. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing and impressive that, uh, that that happens. But it's very helpful you know, to teach kids understanding, beginning truths about the Bible through music. And that's why we sing those songs in children's church and in Awana and Sunday school classes. Uh, but you know this. Maybe it's true in a little way in your own life. Uh, sometimes that's as far as people go in their understanding of those Bible stories and those Bible content. Sometimes they never learn the rest of the story. And there really is quite a bit more to the story. Um, there's a lot more that happened in Jericho than that the walls came tumbling down. And uh, there is more to the story about Zacchaeus than that he was just a wee little guy. Uh, there is uh, so much biblical content that, that we need to understand the implications of it all. And today we're going to come to the passage where those two elements intertwine. Because Jesus passes through Jericho on his final descent to the city of, final ascent to the city of Jerusalem. And he meets two men who wanted to see. If you got the handout, you see that's my title today. Two men who wanted to see. One was a blind man named Bartimaeus. The second was a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Uh, so if you got a Bible or a Bible app, open to Luke 18. And we're going to start this morning in verse, verse 35. 
I'll show you some slides here first. I had the opportunity to have lunch in Jericho a few years ago. I took this picture. Uh, it is not a terribly impressive place anymore. Uh, it is a town about five miles from the edge of the Jordan River, but in a vast rocky desert area. And uh, that just gives you an idea of the surrounding uh, area of Jericho. Uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem, the road is straight uphill for 15 miles. Uh, when I was there, we were in a bus. But in Jesus' day, there was no buses. They walked straight uphill for 15 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's not much to see anymore, but, but when Jesus walked this earth, Jericho was a key roadside town. Uh, Jews made the annual trip down to Jerusalem for three major feasts every year. That was what God had asked, is that for three, these three feasts a year, all Jews would come to the temple to, to celebrate. And so three times a year, they would uh, travel in from every direction. And so many Jews lived up in the, the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that was where Jesus uh, grew up, in the town of Nazareth. And uh, where so much of his ministry took place was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But in the, the region between Galilee in the north and down here where Jerusalem is in the south is this whole area of Samaria. And you've probably heard before how the Jews hated the Samaritans and refused to interact with them. And so Jews would cross the Jordan River, travel all the way down so they didn't have to set foot in Samaria, and then cross right about there, right about at Jericho, climb that hill to the capital city. It was sort of a gateway, a gateway city uh, into uh, the southern area of Jerusalem and a major traffic route. And because of that, it became the perfect place to collect taxes, which we little Zacchaeus was all about. And it was also the perfect place, the ideal place to camp out if you were a beggar. Which describes the first person that I want you to meet with uh, me this morning. I uh, described him as a blind man who could see better than most. Uh, Luke 18, verse 35, down through the end of the chapter. It says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, we don't know the exact timing of the events that are, are recorded in this section, but it is likely just a couple days, two, three days at the most, before Palm Sunday. Uh, there are intriguing details in the background. This is the, the final miracle that Jesus would perform before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that would be the next miraculous thing because you remember he had to heal the ear of the guy that uh, Peter whacked off his ear by waving a sword around that night. This is the last miracle before that. Uh, the two men that we're going to meet this morning were also the final recorded in Scripture salvation stories before the cross, before 
Calvary when a thief would also place his faith in the man on the center cross. And so there's a series of sort of final things and the end is in sight, if you will, as we're uh, moving through Luke chapter 18 and chapter 19. Uh, final things were happening in Jericho. And it starts with a blind beggar. It starts with a blind beggar whom the Gospel of Mark identified as Bartimaeus. Uh, he had uh, somehow lost his sight, had no means to provide for himself, and so camping out in, in Jericho was actually pretty smart. Uh, travelers to the feast of Jerusalem might feel sorry for him out of compassion and, and out of festive hearts, you know, when you're on, on uh, vacation, when you're uh, going to a celebration. Uh, they might give generously to his plight. So he's sitting by the road begging, heard this commotion. When he's told that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, uh, he called out with a very specific title. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now we just read things like that on us too much that that is a very unique statement. In fact, this is the first time in the Gospels in which an individual identified Jesus with that specific title. It's the very first time that it happens. Now, the crowd tries to brush him off. He's persistent. And again, a second time, he used the same specific words. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, that time, it caught Jesus' attention. And like I said, it was very explicit, very unique. It's the first time in the Gospels the title Son of David is used by someone to refer to Jesus. And it was very clearly uh, a, a messianic title, a messianic description. And God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7 was that he would have a son, and that son would have a descendant who would reign on his throne forever. And this blind man somehow connected those dots. This blind man, uh, somehow, uh, through his studies, maybe growing up, through what he'd heard about Jesus, maybe connecting passages, predictions, like is found in Isaiah 58 and 61, uh, uh, connected the fact that Jesus was doing all these things. Jesus is that one. He is that Messiah. He is the Son of David. It was promised all those years ago. Uh, that title is quite true of Jesus, but only this guy, only this man made the connection. And so I put on your hand out there, Bartimaeus could not see physically, but somehow, somehow knew Jesus was the Messiah. He could see what other people apparently couldn't see. Uh, back in our West Virginia days, one of the deacons at our church, his name was Paul White. Paul had developed a medical condition in his middle age uh, years that erased his eyesight completely. Uh, and it had happened well before uh, we were there, well before I met him. He was completely blind. Uh, but he did not let that, uh, that stop him from serving God. He played the guitar and sang. He would let a men's group. He didn't drive the van or anything, but he led the men's group uh, to a nursing home once a month where they put on a little service. Uh, he learned Braille, bought a multi-volume Braille Bible so that he could continue to read the scriptures. He even spent some time pastoring a little country church, and I had the opportunity to preach the installation service as he began that time of ministry. He's a good man who's in heaven today. Um, but there's one thing that always amazed me about Paul is that he could not see physically, but he'd grown up in the that area and he knew every road he knew so much of that that whole surrounding area that uh, you would never know that he was blind 
Uh, one trip in particular, I was driving the church van and Paul was riding shotgun giving me directions. And that statement in itself, it just sounds so unusual <laughs> that you had a blind man uh, giving directions. But he would make comments like, there's going to be a bend in the road up there and, and you'll pass two trees and go over a rough patch and then the building is the first one on the left. And he would give those kind of directions all the time and every time it was spot on. He exactly knew when the road was going to turn and how close we were to the next straight patch, which wasn't very many straight roads in West Virginia, but, but he would point those kind of things out and every single time uh, his directions were perfect. It was amazing. He could not physically see anymore and yet he could, it was like he could. It was like he could see what most people missed. And I, I think of Paul when I, I read the story of Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus was exactly the same. He couldn't physically see, you know, he couldn't physically see that Jesus was walking by in this parade. But somehow he saw what other people were missing. Somehow he knew this Jesus that everybody was talking about was the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David that had been promised uh, so many hundreds of years before. And so he called out for mercy. And his cry for mercy shows his awareness that he didn't deserve anything. Uh, mercy uh, is a word that refers to undeserved kindness, undeserved compassion or concern. And twice he says, he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy is a word that rec recognizes our own lack of merit, uh, worthiness. And Bartimaeus knew he had no right to demand anything from Jesus as the son of God, the son of David, the promised Messiah. He had no right to demand anything, but he hoped he would stop, he hoped he would notice, he hoped he would bring healing. And once Jesus does stop, the conversation is kind of awkward, you know, as we read down through there, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought over. And then he asked, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Now, like I said, that sounds kind of awkward because anybody would think the obvious answer. Of course, he wants to see. He, want, he wants his eyesight healed. What else would a blind man want than to be able to see? And likely Jesus knew that already, but he wanted to verbalize that to communicate to him and maybe for everybody else, uh, expressed his request. And Jesus only needed to speak the word, and for the very first time in a very long time, Bartimaeus could see. But you notice what Jesus said, and it's kind of in passing. Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Your faith. Your belief in Jesus that he is the promised one, the only hope, the Savior. That's what instigated your healing. And uh, in the words that Jesus chose to use there, it's the same situation that I mentioned when we were in chapter 17 and Jesus healed uh, some uh, men with leprosy. And only one came back to talk to him about it. Uh, the word that's translated in the NIV, healed, is more commonly translated saved. And maybe Jesus intended both of those meanings as he put that in there, that your faith has healed you, your faith has saved you. Jesus had the power, Jesus did the miracle. Jesus points out, though, um, that it was his faith, his personal belief in him and what he could do that was the catalyst for healing and salvation in a new direction in life. His faith brought that. His faith instigated that. 
brought not only healing, but salvation and an entirely new direction in life. And verse 43 shows that. It says, immediately he received his sight, just like that. There's no slow process, no apply this medicine, just like that. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised God too. Instantly this man could see and he began to follow Jesus, began to praise God, and the crowd was amazed. Now, we don't know this for sure, but being that just later in chapter 19, you read about the, the Palm Sunday event. I like to think that as the crowd climbed that hill to go to Jerusalem and go to the festival a day or two later, Bartimaeus was right there in the mix, you know, no longer with his cane, uh, but just right in the middle of the crowd, walking, smiling, singing, praising, taking in the view for the first time in a long time. Uh, and he had this first-hand experience with Jesus as the Messiah, and his life was never the same after that. Bartimaeus is the first man who wanted to see. Now, that event happened on the outskirts of Jericho, and actually uh, there were the remnants of the original Jericho, and then the, the modern, at that time, Jericho is uh, just to the south of that, and so likely it was between those two places where this miracle happened. But in any case, chapter 19 describes what happens next. It says, Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming, coming that way. You move from a blind man who could see better than most people to, could see, to a hated man. A hated man who couldn't see past the crowd. Tax collectors have been featured characters in Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' ministry. This is actually the sixth time that tax collectors have been mentioned or have been part of the story. And Zacchaeus is the last one and probably appropriately so the worst of them all. Uh, he is described as a chief tax collector. He was the big boss in the tax collecting operations of Jericho. And he is described as being very wealthy. And those two things together likely made him the most hated man in town because people knew there was a connection between those two things. Uh, the uh, last Sunday we met the rich young ruler and I mentioned how the Jews had a view, uh, a perspective on wealth, that if an individual was very wealthy uh, and their life matched what the law said, what they assumed a good religious person would do, if they're very wealthy, it was an indication of God's blessing on their life. And it was just interpreted that way, and sometimes it still kind of is that way. Uh, the rich young ruler fit that bill, even though he wasn't right with God. Um, Zacchaeus didn't fit that bill. Everybody knew where he got all his money. It was from their back pockets. Uh, the Roman Empire, you know, was vast. It covered multiple regions uh, in the world at the time. And to figure out how to collect money from all those different places, uh, the, uh, the uh, Caesars decided that just transplanting a Roman official in every one of these places wasn't going to work. Uh, so people knew how to hide their money in different parts of the world. And so they hired locals. They hired people who knew everybody, who knew who had money and where they might stash money and how they might try and get around the laws and the tax, and the tax bill. So they hired locals, gave them a bunch of Roman soldiers to assist them. And as long as the imperial tax bill got paid, whatever else you collected, that was yours. Uh, and... Uh, 
tax collectors extracted as much as they possibly could. And that's just how it worked. And everybody knew that was how it worked. And everybody knew that was how Zacchaeus became wealthy. That was where he got all of his cash. Um, being such a crucial gateway town, this, this town that everybody kind of passed through, the main road went right through Jericho, uh, it was apparently quite a big operation, a pyramid there with Zacchaeus at the very top. So they squeezed not only the poor people of Jericho, but everybody that traveled by uh, for, for more tax money. If money makes a man, then Zacchaeus had it made. He had the best that money could buy. His future was financially secure. And yet, just like the rich young ruler that we met last Sunday, Zacchaeus has what outwardly everybody might say, you know, he hasn't made. And yet, he sent something that was missing. And so that's what I put on the first thing. He had the best. He had the best that money could buy, but still longed for this encounter, encounter with the Savior. And that other, that little detail that tends to be highlighted in the kid's song uh, is that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. In other words, he was a short guy. And uh, knowing that most people in the crowd, if he tried to, you know, weasel his way towards the front of the parade route, most people would rather give him an elbow to the face than they would to let him through. Uh, he decided that he would head, head down the road, climb a sycamore tree, and see Jesus that way. And that leads us to verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now this is a strange twist for a number of reasons. First, we've got no reason to believe that these two men had ever met. And yet, Jesus knew Zacchaeus by name. Calls him by name. Um, he stopped under the tree, locked eyes with this, you know, tax cheat there in the tree and called him by name. Um, though they'd never met. Jesus knew Zacchaeus already. Jesus being God knew every person that he met. I was thinking about that a little bit this morning. Every single person that Jesus walked, you know, uh, crossed paths with, he knew. He knew their stories. He knew their struggles. Uh, he knew their failures. He knew their needs. And he hasn't changed in that. And to me, that is a valuable but very easily overlooked fact that Jesus knows every single person. That means he knows you. He knows the things that you're battling with this week. He knows the things that weigh heavy in your heart. He knows your name, your situation right now, your struggles, your flaws, your temptations. He knows. And God knows you. He loves you. Uh, that can be, maybe at times, a very convicting reality. But at other times, I hope at most times, it can be a, a tremendously comforting truth. God knows. He knows you. And whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus knows. It's interesting that Jesus never met the man, but knew his name. But another strange twist is that uh, Jesus invited himself to this hated tax collector's home, the, the one guy that everybody in town hated. I mean, it was universal. Everybody, everybody hated Zacchaeus. And Jesus invites himself to his house. Uh, 
Uh, maybe the sun was starting to set. He was going to have to spend the night there anyway. Uh, but he just singles out the richest guy in town and says, Tonight I'm staying at your place. Uh, rather forward, especially when you're bringing along at least 12 of your closest friends, you know, uh, for dinner too. Uh, but Zacchaeus, it says, he just jumped down and uh, welcomed him gladly. Uh, he seemed to be the one who was seeking Jesus, and yet the opposite is actually true. Jesus went to Jericho that day, targeting, targeting, intersecting with Zacchaeus. He's the one who sought out Zacchaeus and invited himself into his life. And, and you notice where we stop there, verse 7 says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. It wasn't just this time. The Pharisees saw that and they thought, how could he hang out with, with somebody like Zacchaeus? It was everybody, everybody, all the people saw that and, and thought, why in the world? How could Jesus do uh, what he's doing? Um, why would Jesus enter the residence of that man? But it was going to change Zacchaeus' life. And as I said before, Zacchaeus is the last salvation story recorded before the cross. The worst man, the one everybody hated, the one who seemed like certainly didn't deserve the presence of Jesus in his life, is the last salvation story before, before the cross. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said uh, to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I always, you know, read stories like this, and you'd like to know more, right? It would be nice to know what they talked about over dinner that night. It would be nice to know what conversation ensued. You know, what kind of questions did Zacchaeus ask? Uh, how did Jesus explain who he was and what he was here to accomplish? And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe Jesus brought Bartimaeus over to the, to the table to point out some of the things that he apparently understood from the scriptures. We don't know what happened that night. We don't understand, you know, we don't know any of the details of what transpired. But we see the end result of it in these verses. Um, at some point in the evening, Zacchaeus responded to Jesus with faith. He knew his guilt. Everybody knew his guilt. That wasn't very hard. He knew his guilt. He recognized it. He acknowledged that. But Jesus had targeted him anyway. Jesus had intentionally reached out to Zacchaeus despite who he was, despite what he'd done, and Zacchaeus believed. He became a follower of Jesus. And the proof is what I put on that in those blanks. The proof was uh, a change that immediately took place in his heart. Uh, prior to encountering Jesus, uh, he had been a crook consumed with greed. But now he stands up to say, Lord, I'm going to publicly make this commitment that I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor and the other half I'm going to pay back anybody that I cheated, giving them four times what I cheated from him. Now, in all likelihood, that left Zacchaeus with nothing left. Which uh, ought to sound very familiar. 
If you remember again, uh, last Sunday, that story of the rich young ruler, just in the section right before this, he came to Jesus and he asked that softball question, you know, how, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I thought that he had his life all in line, but still sensed something was missing, and Jesus knew that. He knew this young man assumed he was doing it all right and keeping the Ten Commandments, and those were the kind of answers that went back and forth. But Jesus also knew that he had this one big problem. And that was that he loved his money more than he loved God. And so, uh, Jesus said to him, well, here's the thing, to prove that your money is not more important than God, give it all, the, give it all away. Give it all to the poor, then come and follow me. And verse 23 uh, in chapter 18 says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. For that kid, money mattered more than eternal life. Money mattered more than worshiping God. Money mattered more than um, following Jesus. And it led to that statement, it's kind of uh, classic uh, Jesus speak, where he said it's easier for a camel, the largest animal in Israel, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest opening they could probably picture, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth is the greatest distraction from intentionally following Jesus. And that was true then. It's still true now. The wealth is so often the greatest, greatest distraction. And for the rich young uh, ruler, the rich young man of chapter 18, uh, he wouldn't do it, you know. Give it all away? No, can't do that. That mattered more to him than following Jesus. But Zacchaeus proved that the expression was possible. One writer that I read this week uh, wrote these words, Zacchaeus stands in contrast to the rich young ruler. For here a rich man has slithered through the eye of the needle into the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus was a changed man. And Jesus highlights it. He says, today salvation has shown up in this place. Salvation has impacted this heart. And the reality of it was proven by the evidence of this greedy man willing to give it all away. Now, he was no longer just a, a physical descendant of Abraham, but now, spiritually, his child in the faith as well. And it was evidenced by greed transformed into generosity. Then both of those stories, they kind of lead to this one verse... And uh, verse 10 has been described as maybe even the theme verse for the entire Gospel of Luke. And so I put it on there as a verse that explains the mission. Jesus, maybe better than any other, because the very last line, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Son of Man was Luke's favorite description of Jesus. It has its roots back in the book of Daniel. Uh, chapter 7, it's the promise of the Messiah who would be God's eternal uh, Son reigning on the throne forever. And over and over we've read that description of Jesus down through here. But in these verses, Jesus uses that title for himself, but then he highlights why he was here. He came to seek and to save the lost. And not everyone wants to admit that they're lost. When, uh, when I was a kid, I went through a Daniel Boone phase. Any of you guys went through Daniel Boone phases when you were little? No, just me. Well, uh, I had the raccoon cap. I had the buckskin jacket with the fringes and all that stuff. And there's pictures to prove it that I won't show you. But um, Daniel Boone was an early hero for me. But the one quote that I love the most 
uh, from Daniel Boone is when he was asked later in life about his pioneer adventure days. And he was asked if he'd ever been lost. And the answer was, was classic guy talk even back then. Because he said, I can't say as if I was ever lost, but I was bewildered once for three days straight. <laughs> uh, nobody likes to admit that they're lost. Bewildered maybe, a little confused, but not lost. And the same thing is true spiritually. Nobody likes to admit that they're lost, that they need to be found. But salvation starts there. Zacchaeus was this hated rich man that nobody liked, but he knew he was lost. He knew he needed to be found. He knew he needed Jesus. Um, Jesus came to him, sought him out, despite who he was, despite what everybody knew he was, and what he'd done, and Jesus offered salvation. And there's so much hope in that. So much hope packed into that. Doesn't matter, you know, where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you. Jesus is seeking those who admit they're lost and need him. And every single time, he offers salvation. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And maybe that's you. We're going to have the communion service here in just a minute. But before we get there, there's two truths that I, I want everybody to think through and to see clearly here, to see closely. Here's the first one. A person can be lost while they're poor and begging or lost while they're rich and influential. It really doesn't matter what kind of life setting you find yourself in. Um, if you're lost, the need's still the same to be found by Jesus Christ. And sure, people that, that it looks like, you know, they've got all their ducks in a row, they've got their life all working, it's all up and to the right financially or in their family settings or whatever else. Um, sometimes that's harder for those individuals to recognize that they're lost. But if you don't have, and haven't had an encounter with Jesus Christ, haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, then it starts there. It starts there. And I would ask everybody to really think that through. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you realize that you could not do enough, could not be enough, could not accomplish enough to be right with God on your own? Have you ever sensed your spiritual guilt and your need as a sinner who's lost? I hope that everyone can because it's only there that salvation begins. It's only there that turning to the Savior um, begins to totally transform your heart. Those with uh, rich young ruler thinking that we talked about last Sunday struggle with salvation because those that think, you know, I'm pretty good, I keep the rules, I go to church once in a while, uh, I don't hurt other people, God will certainly let me into his kingdom when I die. Those people have a problem because they don't realize that they are lost or they don't want to admit it. The polar opposite describes Zacchaeus. He knew he was lost. He knew he was hopelessly guilty. He had nothing to bring to the table. But salvation came to his heart and radically changed his life when he responded to Jesus with faith. And that really is the key, the key word that is a catalyst for it, is faith. Faith in Jesus, who he is and what he did. Um, Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus both took a step of faith in Jesus. And it's really important that I always ask, have you done that? Do you know for sure that you have? And if not, will you do that today? 
Second thing to see really clearly, and this one I, I hope is for all of us to consider, is that authentic salvation will always result in a changed life. Authentic salvation will always result in a changed life. Uh, you have heard, just like I have heard and talked to people at times that uh, especially maybe have a child who um, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa know, you know, way back when they were five, they prayed a prayer. But their life isn't any different. And now they're adults and now it's 40 years later. But grandma and grandpa or mom and dad are still hanging on to that. I know they're a Christian. I know they're, they're safe. Because I remember when they prayed a prayer. But their lives have never been changed an ounce. That's a problem. Authentic salvation will always result in a changed life. It will always result in a difference. You see it in both these guys. Bartimaeus suddenly could physically see when he couldn't see before and follow Jesus, left behind his life, left behind his patterns, and followed. But Zacchaeus is the boldest example. Uh, Zacchaeus abandoned his life of greed, became a person of reckless generosity, gave it all away so he could follow Jesus. They were both substantially different men after meeting the Savior. And that's a really big marker. It is. It's a really big marker. Authentic salvation always changes a person. And I would suggest that it's not just that change happens the minute that we trust Christ, but that change never really stops. That we constantly should be changing more and more to be like the Savior. And that it's never complete, this side of heaven. And I hope that you can identify some ways. You know what? I'm different than I was before I met Jesus. But I also hope you can identify some ways that you're still growing and changing. That you're still different than you were a year ago in your journey with, with Christ. Your journey with the Savior. The journey of a disciple is not finished the side of glory. And it's good to ask questions once in a while. How am I different? How am I different than I was before? I met Christ. How am I different than I was last year at this time? How am I more and more like the Savior? What happened in Jericho changed the lives and the eternities of two men who wanted to see Jesus. Uh, the Christian life is a life of transformation and a life of change. And I hope that you know that personally. I hope that you have put your faith in Christ and Him alone. But I also hope that you'll ask that second, the second question. How is my relationship with Jesus changing who I am now? How am I different today than I used to be? We're going to pray. I'm going to ask the deacons if they would prepare for communion. And then I'll share some things about that. So let's, let's talk to God. Father, I, I thank you so much for stories of these two men. Individuals in Jericho, a city that maybe we don't associate as much with, uh, transform lives as we do falling bricks. And yet, very clearly, these two men responded with faith to their encounter with Jesus and it radically changed their lives. And I would pray that all of us would consider that need in ourselves. Maybe somebody here this morning has not yet come to that place in life of recognizing, you know what, I, I, I was trying, I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to do the best I can, but just can't seem to, can't seem to be good enough. I hope that it's good enough. 
Uh, I pray, Lord, if just one person here today has that mentality, they'll realize they'll never be good enough on their own. That's why Jesus came here, to seek to save every one of us who put our faith in him. If they're not sure, my prayer is that today they'd settle that. But for all of us, Lord, looking back, hopefully uh, looking at a, uh, a point in our life when we took that step, when we crossed that line of realizing, I am lost, I need to be found by the Savior. I need to trust Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. I hope that we can look back and celebrate that, but also recognize that we are different people and that we are constantly needing to change a little bit more, grow a little bit more, become a little bit more like the Savior who loves us and who died for us. And as we reflect on what happened at Calvary through the elements of the communion service, Lord, I pray uh, you'll, you'll challenge every one of us to ask hard questions of where we are right now in our heart and maybe where we need to be. In Jesus' name I pray. 